0: I think theology's for the clergy. I just believe
1: in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand
2: an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? I know.
1: Welcome to the broadcast, folks. It is Theology Unplugged. We're coming to you from the Credo House in Edmond, Oklahoma. A lot of people, Tim, have, uh, have uh, heard about us. Through Theology Unplugged, and now just drive through town, uh, through I-40 or I-35, going from one end of the country to the other and stop by here. So yeah. it's, it's nice to see people uh, stopping by here. So I got to do a shout out for Edmond, Oklahoma, every once in a while. That's right. We're not far from I-35, just a few miles. So if you're on I-35, easy to get here. Yeah, come on over. We'll make it worth your while. Absolutely. You just take the Memorial
0: Avenue exit turn right and just come straight over and make another right in your hair yeah,
1: yeah not far no uh sam how you doing i'm doing well i doing better than i deserve that's for sure sam storms pastor bridgeway church tim executive director credo house ministries michael uh founder president credo house ministries that's who we are that's
0: us. I thought you were going to come up with some really uh, elaborate title for yourself. There. You looked like <laughs> yeah. you were thinking, like I you, was, I was Lord like, High Mocus. You know, the, I to try to figure the out the grand old I am. man,
1: barista behind the bar. I actually have been working behind the bar now for it's been almost what two months, mm-hmm. from seven to nine. Yeah, that's been a lot of fun reengaging yeah. with the. Uh, with the barista stuff and, and
2: dude, your latte skills are really getting good. They're incredible, brother. Yeah, I mean the some of the finest coffee shops will be able to froth the milk to such a, a point of perfection that you can get very detailed art as you're pouring it. That's very difficult to do if you do not properly froth the milk, do not properly pull the espresso shots. And brother, you're there, man. I mean, you're things you don't that they, they don't teach us in seminary and uh, you know find skills. I, I didn't skills. get that course at Dallas. Yeah, seminary. you missed the latte know, uh, the latte course yeah. bro it's uh, it, it needs to be there because well, here's a proposal I'm making here
1: live okay from Theology Unplugged to you okay I think part of our tour we've got a 45 minute tour folks yeah And and we walk people through church history so if you want to get a Group of people to come up here. Call beforehand if you got a group, you know, of twenty yeah. people or so. so we, we we've had hundred
2: high school students show up at one time. Yeah, we did. That was kind of crazy. <laughs> and but, they and they all ordered frappuccinos or, uh, or fraps as we call them. Uh, uh, and if you want to get
1: a tour, it's a great tour. But I think we need to add to the tour just how to make a uh, latte. Yeah, and walk through the process because that is a fun deal.
2: It's fascinating. Yeah. You know what? I mean, it's just one of those things of of creation where you can do it a million times and still find it a challenging, interesting, an artistic challenge. And even uh, our pour-over, our V60 and Chemex pour-over coffee is a challenge as well. Uh, but it, But the main thing is I want people to understand it's part of our DNA. It's part of who we are. Yeah. Because
1: we want, we want people to come here, and, and ultimately we want people to be engaged with Jesus Christ. Yeah. But sometimes we've got to engage them with a good coffee first. you know? So we are seeker-sensitive here. <laughs> we are.
2: We're seeker-sensitive with, Speak a, whole, for yourself.
1: <laughs> with a whole bunch of, of doctrine to, to back it up with. One of these days we need to do something on just uh, you know, how to do church and seeker-sensitive movement and oh my you know, the, the traditional ways and just kind of uh, liturgy in general. That'd be fun, wouldn't it? Uh, it would. It, it's it would. easy for me and Tim as we're not uh, head pastors of church. About it. <laughs> we'll have to grill uh, Sam on it all. But listen, we've got a passage here. This is our last passage of this series. Then we're starting a new series. Maybe we'll tease the new series at the very end, but we're going to be talking about uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 through 15. And let me read this. I'm going to read it in the English Standard Version. if you guys know of any more controversial issue.
2: Actually, we're just going to let you take this one, Michael. Sam yeah. and I are just going to sit back, and this all is right. all you, brother. Introduction, three points, <laughs> and
1: conclusion on this one. I've never heard a sermon on this that I didn't see since some real timidity, fear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is It is a very hard – Sam – do you skip this passage? No, I don't skip it, I, but I do. Uh, you just skip the whole book, right? Just to make sure. <laughs> do you wear a
2: bulletproof vest as you're preaching
1: this? Yeah, and a crash helmet as well. Uh, probably the most controversial thing, I would say, because it, it, it sparks more emotions than any other issue. Now, we could talk about issues in culture and politics. Right now, we're going through issues of, of homosexuality and stuff with Chick-fil-A and, mm-hmm. and whether or not they will... Uh, 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 are the, are homosexual friendly and people banning them a lot of emotion involved a lot of emotion involved and a lot of theological issues but nothing more than this I, yeah. I, this is my opinion i'm not I, i'm not saying stating this as if we all agree here but i think that this is the most emotionally driven and difficult issue because of the emotions involved do you guys
2: agree? Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably way up there for sure. I what mean, else challenges it? I mean, yeah, I mean, what, I th- what
1: rivals this?
2: I do think like biblical uh, biblical controversy about homosexuality, things like that. Do, but I, I do think though that this, I do think this brings up the most emotion. I think when you look on our blog too, uh, that this this topic usually brings the most comments as well.
0: And and let's be clear, the the, the subject of uh, same sex attraction, homosexuality really is a controversy between the church and the broader secular society, it's not really a debate within the evangelical church. Yeah. This issue, however, is a debate within evangelicalism. Yeah. People who uh, who will affirm the inspiration and even the inerrancy of Scripture will differ on what this passage means and how it is to be applied. Uh, that typically isn't the case when it comes to something like homosexuality.
1: So inside the church, this is probably the most controversial uh, d- uh, topic. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissim- submissiveness. I, Paul says, do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Okay. what's what, Obviously, the controversy comes out because this isn't fair, right? I mean, we're talking about our women. We're talking about my wife and and, and, uh, people that we feel like would be qualified to teach. And is Paul just making a blanket statement here that uh, no woman can teach and that they are to uh, live in this, and let me put it in a way that uh, I suppose a lot of people will emotionally react, but in this backwoods kind of Muslim-like, Mormon-like, way of doing life, this patriarchal – how do you say it? Yeah, that's right. That's close enough. <laughs> close <laughs> uh, enough for a Society to where
2: men rule, women be quiet. Well, yeah, because you, you have to see here it's teach – or exercise authority. And that word or, I think, is an important distinction to make. So, Because some people might think, well, teaching is kind of an exercise of authority. But there seems to be a distinction here of the woman can't teach or she also can't exercise authority. What are the positions here, Sam?
0: Well, there are, there are a number of, of arguments that are made. Let, let me um, – I'll, I'll um, set forth the uh, arguments of those who – Today would call themselves egalitarians. Egalitarians are those who believe that uh, men and women equally are uh, authorized and empowered and called of God to teach and exercise authority in the church. For those, for example, who would say that women can be senior pastors, uh, can preach and teach the Word of God on a regular basis, and can serve as elders in the local church, they argue, for example, that.
1: Um Paul, Wait, Sam, before you go sure. through, can you name some egalitarians so we get some perspective here?
0: Um, name some
1: egalitarians. That are, that are respectable egalitarians. Well, Gordon
0: Fee, one of the finest New Testament scholars alive today, is an egalitarian. Um,
1: Grothuis, I think, who's going to be at the conference that we're you know, going to. Douglas Grothuis, he and his wife Rebecca are, are strong egalitarians. Um, is there any denominations that adopt this, that reject it? Um
0: well certainly the Southern Baptists are have rejected it. They in the, in the Baptist faith and message that was revised a few years ago. They put in a clause, a paragraph that affirmed complementarianism, which argues that whereas men and women are certainly equal in in the eyes of God in terms of their moral and spiritual value and dignity, they are assigned complementary but differing roles where men have primary leadership in the home and in the church and and um uh, women are
1: not uh, given the office of elder or the position of, of a pastor. Official statements by Catholic Church, Eastern Orthodoxy, Presbyterianism, any those that officially reject this? Uh, the PCA, Presbyterian Church of America, is strongly complementarian.
0: They would reject egalitarianism. The, the Roman Catholic Church, of course, does not allow women to be priests. Eastern Orthodoxy is complementarian in their views. Um, I don't know that there are any denominations – that uh, have any official statements, but um, you know the Episcopal Church is certainly um, uh, egalitarian. United Methodist Church. United Methodist Church would be. Um,
1: so, I, I, and what I've noticed is that the it, within evangelicalism, it is a trend that people are moving towards to some degree. Uh, if you're in the emerging crowd, so the kind of the emerging movement seems to. Uh, as one of their calling cards, egalitarianism, mm-hmm. although I, there's no official statement of emerging movement, but that just seems to be kind of the the ethos of the evangelical culture, mm-hmm. the kind of movements that you see in, in the people that are trying to renew evangelicalism or revise evangelicalism or change evangelicalism. This is one of the main things. And yeah.
0: mm-hmm.
1: in the, in the big debate here, if
0: I can boil it down to its simplest uh, terms, is this. Is Paul... Speaking to a unique, local, time-culture-bound problem that he was facing in the first century, or is he giving us a timeless, transcultural principle that ought to govern Christians and churches throughout the history of the church until Jesus comes back? Um, the egalitarian says that Paul was addressing a unique problem that was present uh, in the first century, and particularly in Ephesus, where uh, most likely Timothy was based, and that he was not prescribing any or, or suggesting anything that would necessarily apply to us in the 21st century. So, for example, they say in verse 12, I do not permit a woman. They'll emphasize the present tense. I am not now uh, allowing or permitting a woman. Uh, but he's not saying that he would never do so in the future. He's addressing some unique
1: particular issue in the present time. Could you say it's opinion-based, I don't permit a woman type thing? Well, no, the problem is, is it's an, it is an apostolic not. opinion. So that, <laughs> <laughs> True.
0: But, but then uh, they would argue, for example, perhaps Paul is saying that he doesn't permit a woman to teach because in that day and time they were uneducated. Uh, Or he is not permitting a woman to teach in Ephesus because in that city they were prone to heresy and false teaching. Uh, And so given the fact that we live in a time where women have access to education, and as long as they are teaching orthodox truth, this prohibition would not apply to them uh, in, in the 21st century. That's the egalitarian argument in one shape or form. They would insist that this was a culture bound, time bound, context uh, unique situation that was relevant for Timothy in first century Ephesus, but is not relevant for us in 21st century Oklahoma. Well, for and example. to
1: make people understand it in, in a real, I think, uh, relevant way that brings it home is that we read the passage in Ephesians that says, Slaves obey your masters. And we don't really make that a timeless principle in this sense, that we should always have slaves and that they should always obey their masters. And we we can see that in a cultural context. And they would say this is kind of the same thing. In this context, women are not allowed to teach or exercise authority over a man. Is that right? Yeah. Um, And, of
0: course, the complementarian response is if you read the passage carefully, Paul grounds or bases his prohibition in something that appears to be transcultural because he says in verse 13, for or because Adam was formed first and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. And so the argument is uh, the prohibition on women teaching and exercising authority over men is not grounded in something unique to the first century but in fact Paul appeals to Genesis and in fact to the situation before the fall he says the the priority or the precedence of Adam's creation over Eve or before Eve is in fact the reason why um, he maintains this this order uh, in other words he's saying there is something unique, about adam having been created first there is a there is a headship there is a leadership principle that is expressed there that um is the reason why women should not
1: assume a a, a leadership authority over men in the life of the local church tim let's Mm -hmm. take this passage out let's say that paul didn't write this okay we, we found an earlier manuscript and this isn't there uh somebody added it later what do we still have the same situation represented in the Bible? Is this the only passage that really pushes us this far?
2: I mean, one thing, I mean, we can look at definitely leadership in the Bible. I mean, it's definitely a patriarchal Viewpoint for sure, but I mean we do have the qualifications for elders and overseers too, and uh, you know we can we can discuss what it means. But and the qualifications it, the, being but assuming one, that it's a man. Y- yes, the qualifications do seem to assume that that an elder needs to be a, a one woman man, uh, and there does seem to be an assumption there that this is a, that we are speaking about a man. Now some people might say, well, if a woman is a is a pastor, that means that this woman needs to be a faith faithful to her spouse. Uh, but uh, but the assumption though here is that we are talking about we are talking about a man who is a faithful man to his wife and to piggyback on sam too with a with with looking at adam I think I think so many times we look at passages like this, and we think this is so derogatory towards women, uh, but, uh, but almost like Ephesians 5 as well. We look at Ephesians 5, and we see, uh, wow, look, wives have to submit to their husbands, but then the rest of the chapter is written about how men need to make sure that, that they're basically deserving that respect and earning that respect. And I think... One of the things that, that I think many people leave out because they feel such a visceral reaction to this passage is that I think the tendency of a man in almost any generation is to just sit back and let the women run the church. You look at that statistically, that men are, are, are have a tendency towards apathy and towards uh, not being engaged as spiritual leaders of their family and of their church. And I think that if, so I don't think this passage necessarily says that women are not capable of leading a church, but I think God is showing that women can and are fully capable of leading families and churches, but the men need to learn from God and uh, and be able to give up hobbies, give up all of these worthless things that don't matter for the sake of things that really matter, being the kingdom God and leading your family and your church in godly ways. And so I think one of the reasons God is doing this is so that men would step up to the plate and lead in the way that we're supposed to. Well, I disagree, and I'm and ask Sam a question I know you here. disagree too. This is one area where we disagree. I, I, I don't
1: think that women are capable. I, I think that that's part of what it's talking about. I don't think that w- women are capable to teach this, and I'll, I'll explain more in a moment. And I'm going to let that hang. Folks, for a um, <laughs> all
0: of your uh, emails and protests should be directed to Michael, not to me and Tim.
2: <laughs> that's right, because Michael, I, I disagree Michael with P Michael at on
1: this, uh, <laughs> that Studio Credo House, or like that. Uh, Sam. Um, you're, you're not egalitarian. You're a complementarian believing that this passage has eternal, transcendent application to us today and that it's very important. But I want to ask you a question. How do you explain to someone who comes up to you and says why? I, I understand the, the Bible says it, okay? Uh, but beyond the Bible says it, what's the principle? Why does Paul not let woman, women teach or exercise authority over men or a man?
0: I think the answer that he gives here, that he also uses in 1 Corinthians 11, when he talks about the relationship between men and women, is, again, grounded in the created order, that God, in his wisdom, believed that the most practical, the most efficient, the most God-honoring way in which relationships should be established and pursued uh, is when um Men, husbands, provide primary leadership in the home and in the church, and I I would even argue that in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul appeals to the relationship among the persons in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, that there is a headship. Although there is complete equality in terms of divinity and divine nature, there is a relationship of headship and submission that the Father is the head and the Son submits to the Father, not just in time, not just by virtue of the incarnation of Christ, but in the eternal Godhead. There is actually a relationship of what we might call headship and submission, and that the life that God has called us to pursue on earth, both in the home and in the church, should reflect uh, the life that is inherent within God himself. Mm. And I uh, personally, I, I, so I don't want us to get derailed here, I would disagree with you too, Michael, if you are saying, and I don't know what you're saying, I want to be clear about this, if you're saying that you don't think that women somehow are inherently capable of teaching, and that that's the reason why Paul makes this prohibition. I would disagree for one primary reason, and that is that Paul encourages women to teach other women. So he assumes that they have a capacity to learn. In fact, he says right here in this passage, she is um, he says in verse 11, let a woman learn. So certainly there's equal intellectual skills here. She can learn. She can study. She can ingest and process truth, and she can, in turn teach other women and children and uh, so so Paul doesn't question in my opinion, the competency of women; he just questions the propriety of them. Uh, enforcing on the conscience of men the, the truths that we find in Scripture in, in what I would call a formal, official, public way in the life
1: of the local church. And I, I think that's interesting. Propriety is the key in the sense of the, the idea of submission, the Trinity, headship, the, cre- the created order. <coughs> um, now, now here's what I would say, and I would agree with you here that that women... Uh, I grew up... I, I don't know where I got this from. It was probably ingrained within me with my sisters. I grew up with three sisters and uh, I was the only boy. My dad was very quiet, never really talked, so I had women all around me. And I remember growing up, and, and probably until I was 13 or 14, I thought that there was something within the mind of women that uh, made them smarter. I just thought they were smarter. It was just kind of one of those folk things that mm-hmm. I think was ingrained within me with my with my sisters and my mother. But uh, my sisters both excelled in school. I mean, A's every single semester, straight A's. I never did. Uh, they were very much more aggressive, smarter than I am uh, in in every way. And so I, I would never say that women are not smarter than men. What I would say is this, that there is a certain thing that Paul sees within the church. Uh, and whenever Paul, I think, sees pastoring and leadership in the church, I do think, and I, this is very controversial, and I put it on the blog, and I got ripped to shreds for it, but I still stand by it. I think that there is a combativeness that Paul assumes within teaching within the church, pastoring within the church. I think he sees that we are in a warlike stance and that there is a not only a propriety, I would say there is an effectiveness that men can have in this role more than women. Now, let me back up and say something else that is very inherent within this debate with egalitarians and complementarians. Complementarians simply mean that men and women complement each other, that there are pieces of a puzzle, that one does not have certain components that another one has. And generally speaking, complementarians say this, that men are better equipped for certain things and women are better equipped for certain things. And I think of all kinds of things that women are much better at, much more inclined towards, much more natural if you develop them in such a way and, and lead them in such a way and celebrate the diversity in such a way. Men and women function better in certain roles. And now let me back up and move right around the other side of this passage and say this. I think men make better leaders in armies. Okay? Okay. I think they make better generals. I think that people follow them in a warlike situation more readily and respond to men in these situations more readily. I think Paul sees in the church the same type of thing. I think he sees that the battle for truth, the battle for doctrine is not unlike the war that we are in. And, And I'm saying here, yes, I agree with you, Sam. About that, I disagree with you that women could do it just as easily. I I think a woman could. I think, yeah, you could say theoretically, a woman could lead an army just as well as a man. There's examples. Joan of Arc. Yeah. But the exception does not define the rule, and I don't think Paul would say that as well, just because we can bring up exceptions of how women can lead just as effectively. And one of the reasons why I see this is because Paul does talk about Eve being deceived. Now, I don't claim to understand everything that's going on here whenever he says, the woman was deceived not the man. But what I see in here is this idea of, of deception and this idea of submission and this idea of effectiveness that can be brought about because what Satan taught was false doctrine. What Paul sees here is the combativeness of the pulpit. So
0: let me see if I understand what you're saying. You're suggesting then that there is something in men um, by God's creative design, not the result of the fall, that enables them to more readily, as it were, draw a line in the sand when it comes to uh, theological issues, that more that inclines them to more readily and naturally, um, hold to firm positions when it would be so tempting to compromise or to um, uh, to fudge, as it were. And that because of this this inclination, this disposition, this divinely intr- this intrinsic orientation, as it were, in the male soul, um, to be more definitive, maybe more dogmatic, more, in a sense, combative. Theologically, yeah. not necessarily physically combative, but more ready to wage war on behalf of certain doctrines, that this makes them more suitably equipped to lead than
1: women. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I'm saying in a situation as well. I mean, here we go out the pulpit, but sit down in a situation where you have to enact church discipline mm-hmm. and you have to say, hey, you, 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 man, you know, you are in this singles class and you are. You are, in, in your, your your intentions, groping for something that you should not be groping for. Maybe groping is the wrong word. I, <laughs> I, I just want to say, I uh, I understand that view. I'm not, I'm not
0: persuaded by it. I'm not prepared to take that position. But I understand why, both from a passage such as this and even from experience broadly conceived. Now, again, as you say, there are always exceptions. Broadly conceived um it might appear that such is the case i'm not prepared to to take that stand quite so definitively as you would on On this point,
2: and and I'm there too, uh, but because I don't think you have to go there, and uh, and I think that's why I don't go there is because I don't think you have to. Because and and part of this is my background too. I was I was a part of uh, the church I grew up in had a a woman as a senior pastor, and I was not a believer at this point, but she was excellent at shepherding the people. She was excellent at loving the people. She was a she was by all metrics uh, a great pastor. And uh, but and what was interesting to me though is that I knew zero godly men in the farm town that I was growing up in when I was growing up. So I knew this lady that was the pastor of the church, but no men of God stood up. And And I think you can even show that in uh, statistics as well. I know that there are studies have been done that if a uh, if a woman uh, lo- like if kids love the children's program out of the church there's a good chance the family will go to the church like twenty five percent chance the family will become a member if if the the wife loves the church there's like a fifty percent chance that the family will go to this church if the man loves the church there's an eighty five percent chance that the family will go to that church and, and I think that just naturally shows uh, the leadership role that that there's a void there that a uh, women can quickly fill because the men are nowhere to be found. But uh, but I kind of still stick to this thing that, I, that, that men are given to apathy, and men are given to just give their life to their hobbies and not given to what really matters, which is to give their lives to their families and to leading uh, the kingdom of God forward on earth. Well, and- I understand
1: what you're saying, Tim, but you're dealing with a different problem here. I don't think you're dealing with this passage. I think what you're saying is that, Nobody's following by this, and you're frustrated by it. No, I understand
2: No, no, no. What I'm saying is that I'm, I'm directly. You're, you're approaching this passage from kind of like a biological perspective. I'm approaching this perspective from a leadership perspective, and I'm saying that that I, I don't I don't need to go down this rabbit trail of why women can't uh, biologically fulfill like why they why Paul says no women cannot stand up and teach. I'm looking and saying the reason women can't stand up to teach is because the men need to be the ones standing up and teach. And it has nothing to do about any inferiority with the women. It has to do with the inferiority of the men who are who have a propensity. Even with Adam, when when Satan is tempting Eve, Adam should have been there kicking Satan's butt. But instead, Adam was nowhere to be found. Do snakes have butts. They do. When, when <laughs> this it's, is when, it's <laughs> <laughs> when it's when it's started. <laughs> is is the his, very opposite of what Paul says. Cutting cutting his head off.
1: Paul says Adam was formed first than Eve. Sam's point mm-hmm. priority. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being, was deceived. Yeah. That's my point. Yeah. And so I think they're both there, but 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 in the end, I'm trying to give a, a rationale for someone who is disturbed by this. And here's here's the point: Paul could have just as easily in other situations say, "I don't allow a man to do blank," mm-hmm. and I would think that that was in, in entirely. Um, permitted and we may get mad. No, I can do that, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't ama- allow a man to to nurture the children the way that that a woman is to nurture them. Mm-hmm. Um, w- wait a minute. I've seen nurturers before in men. I- I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that There isn't certain aspects out there where women can do this or that men can do something. But I'm saying if we allow for that and if we dismiss what is being said here, we dismiss the celebratory aspect of complementarianism. Mm -hmm. Complementarianism is so much more than just this verse. It is a celebration of the differences and an inclination within all of us. To, to push for these differences and to say that these differences matter, not just because we're trying to follow the Bible alone, but because they have meaning behind it, and society is neutered whenever we do not um, uh, recognize these differences and and excel people in those directions. I hear you. Well, what
2: does it mean that she'll be saved through childbirth? Then? Oh, that's a good one. I, I got <laughs> my know. view on that, but I'm going to let you guys go for a minute.
1: I, I, think it, I think it settles the issue, and I think it, it helps. Yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, there's so many
0: other issues we haven't even addressed here. I mean, like uh, the fact that Paul uses the present tense. By the way, let me say, there are countless, dozens of moral imperatives in the New Testament stated in the present tense. The fact that it's in the present tense does not suggest it was meant only for the people of the first century to whom Paul was presently writing. Mm -hmm. If you eliminated every command because it was in the present tense, you'd lose half of the of the of the moral imperatives of the New Testament. Yeah. Great commission would be gone. Yeah. Another thing, there's no indication that Paul pr- prohibited women from teaching because they were uneducated. Um, if that, because, in fact, we know there were some educated women in Ephesus. We think, for example, of uh, of Priscilla, who was obviously
1: very well-educated, uh, the fact that Paul prohibits because all- Sam, Sam, that is a big view. That is a major argument that's out there that says the reason why Paul said this in that culture is that women were uneducated. But in right? First
2: Corinthians, he allows women to prophesy, though. So. But
1: but we
0: also have evidence that women did have access to education in F, in first century Ephesus. Uh, there's been numerous articles written to that effect, and furthermore, if. If if women were uneducated, and that's the reason why Paul is prohibiting them from teaching men, then why wouldn't he also have prohibited them from teaching women and children? So that just doesn't make sense. Furthermore, he's not prohibiting uh, women from teaching false doctrine or heresy here. Uh, that's nowhere mentioned in the passage. There's no indication that women were teaching false doctrine in Ephesus. And furthermore, there is an actual Greek word that is translated false doctrine false teaching that he uses elsewhere in the pastorals that he doesn't use here. So that doesn't work. Um, But the point is, I think Paul is speaking here of the official capacity of the pastors and elders of a local church. And that's what he is restricting to men and prohibiting women from embracing. But getting to verse 15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing. Notice that's third person singular. If they, third person plural, continue in faith and love and holiness and self-control. Some have said this is a reference to uh, the virgin birth. And they're saying that uh, women will be saved because one in particular, Mary, gave birth to the Messiah, Jesus. Um, I find that a rather far-fetched interpretation. Certainly, Paul is not saying that women are saved by some work that they perform uh, he's not undermining his, his teaching on justification by grace alone through faith alone. My sense is that he is citing childbearing or giving birth as a representative act of of godly obedience in the home and in the marriage, which he then supplements with faith, love, holiness, and self-control. And he's citing these things as, evident, as evidence of the fact that that the woman is saved. So he's saying, I'm encouraging women to embrace their calling as mothers, as those who give birth to children, as well as those who should live a life of faith and love and holiness and self control, and that these are the fruit of the reality of the salvation. We can We can have confidence that their salvation is real and genuine when we see them embracing these responsibilities in life. Because we're going to need to remember one of the things that the false teachers in Ephesus were promoting was they were saying marriage is bad, you shouldn't get married, and therefore you shouldn't have kids. And so Paul is saying, no, it's good to be married, it's good to have children, this is part, one aspect of what it is to be a godly woman. Now what is your interpretation?
1: Um, well, it, it all comes down to the word "saved," I think, and I, I'm trying to figure out in the context of what he's talking about, and, and why would he bring up this idea that we would think they wouldn't be saved? I mean, wait a minute, why do you have to interject this idea that they will be saved? What have they been lost from? In my in my view, I think the New American Bible actually has a has a really good uh, statement here. I think they get part of it right and part of it wrong. If we're trying to say interpretation, I mean. It's it's very hard when we're translating these things, but it says, but she will be saved through motherhood. Okay. Motherhood. That's key for me. And I also like the new American standard. She shall be preserved. So she shall be preserved through motherhood. Preserved from what? Well, I think the whole idea here is this indignity that they may find of what has been said. Wait a minute, I can't teach? Wait a minute, you have just lowered me and said that I, I, I have no worth, basically, in the church. And what Paul is saying here, in my view, is that you will find your dignity. If I could put it this way, in a, in a kind of Eugene Peterson type way, yet women will find their dignity in motherhood. Even though their dignity they seems to be lost in the teaching and, and the leadership your dignity is found in motherhood. Your dignity is found in nurturing. Your dignity is indeed found, truly found. Without this, we don't have it. But it, it's contingent. It's contingent. Your your, your motherhood, uh, your your giftedness, your your calling is contingent upon your faith and charity and holiness and sobriety.
2: And well, and they're good. I mean, Chuck Swindoll has had a huge influence on both of us, and and. Uh, he would not be the man who he is today without his mother, without the godly influence. His mother told him, if you memorize a verse, or if you memorize a chapter, I'll memorize a book. So every chapter you memorize, I'm memorizing a book. He would find the shortest chapter in the Bible, and she would just memorize anything. And he said, those memorized verses is what's kept me from Romans 7 (laughs) depths. It kept me from cheating on my wife, all these things. And so, I mean, we do see... You can be a world changer through this. You could even have way more influence than you could ever have leading a megachurch.
0: Let me. That's that's interesting. Let me come back to this before we end, uh, because you raised the issue of what "saved" means here. Some have argued that what the woman is saved from is an illusion. Back. To verse 14. And what she's saved from is usurping the role of her husband. Because the point is, Eve should uh, not have engaged with the serpent directly. Adam was standing nearby. As Tim said, he apathetically and passively refused to get uh, involved in the temptation. And so the argument is, she will be saved from this usurping the role and the headship and the leadership of her husband if she commits herself to motherhood, to faith, to love, to self-control. That's one argument. And again, we're going to probably leave our listeners hanging here because the word "saved," the verb here, every time it's used in the pastorals refers to spiritual salvation, what we would typically call justification, forgiveness of sins. So the translation that the New American Standard you cited uh, has preserved, that's really out of keeping with the normal way in which this word is used in the pastoral epistles. So it remains a problem. Um, If it's referring to spiritual salvation, um, it would be, I think, the, 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 the weight of evidence would incline more toward the view that I proposed. If you can make a case that it refers to something other than forgiveness and justification, if it refers to some sort of preservation or guarded from, then perhaps the argument, Michael, that you put forth would uh, would carry more weight. So a lot does hinge on the significance of
1: the verb to save here. Yeah, yeah. I think that uh, that is the ending point. And
2: Should we I, foreshadow the next uh,
1: series? Sure. I was going to f- close this one out, but I guess it's
2: closed. Yeah, <laughs> let it be closed. All right, foreshadow it. All right. We are moving into Roman Catholicism. We are going to... Well, that
0: doesn't mean we're converting to it. (laughs) Let's be clear.
2: Yes, that's good. That's good. For all of you that are swerving off the road right now, uh, we will enter into an in-depth study of Roman Catholic theology, uh, hopefully doing due uh, justice, but then also from an evangelical Christian perspective. And uh, we think that it will be a blessing because we recognize that there are Roman Catholics all over the place and uh, Protestants all over the place place and uh, living lives uh, in uh, shoulder-to-shoulder areas and the questions of our Roman Catholic saved, uh, purgatory, you know, Pope, all, just all sorts of questions. We're yeah, gonna, get we're your Roman Catholic
1: friends to listen to it too. Sam has taught a class on this at Wheaton on Roman Catholicism,
2: and And I think it'll be very engaging. And you're very interested in Roman Catholic theology, and I grew up Roman Catholic, so uh, we've got some interesting things there. All right. Well, uh, next week we will uh,
1: pick this back up with Roman Catholic theology. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Theology Unplugged. Visit our iTunes page by searching Theology Unplugged at the iTunes store. All episodes are available as free downloads. Theology Unplugged is made possible by Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. Reclaiming the Mind Ministries is a listener-supported ministry. If you've enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For information on how to become a ministry partner and for a complete listing of ministry resources, visit the RMM homepage at www.reclaimingthemind.org. Thank you for listening, and God bless.